Hey fam, thanks for listening to the Better Man podcast. This season, the podcast is brought to you by Aroga Drive, one of my favorite energy supplements. If you're looking for all day clean energy that won't let you crash and burn, Drive is the one. Stop pounding the coffee, stop crushing the Red Bulls. Instead, take Aroga Drive one time in the morning and you're good for the rest of the day. Check it out in the show notes or visit arogadrive.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Better Man Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Tarno. Today, we're going back to the archives. We have got my friend, Clint Bruce, that we're going to bring back a blast from the past. He had an episode that we aired back in October of 21, and we called that episode Men in Their 20s. And I've known Clint for a few years. We go to the same church. Uh, he's got you know that amazing background, Navy SEAL and uh, does so many different amazing things now. He's a larger-than-life character. Um, he also was an NFL linebacker. You know, just a normal, just just the normal life that many of us men <laughs> live. But uh, he is the real deal. And so it was a lot of fun to talk to him about men in their 20s. And so some of you listening may be in your 20s, or if that's not you, you probably know somebody in their 20s. And we wanted to bring this episode back because his message to men in their 20s was fantastic. And it's basically this, this is not a throwaway decade. This is not a dress rehearsal. Of course, you're going to make some mistakes, but if you really want to be the man that God wants you to be, then you are going to embrace your 20s and understand um, that that this all counts. And so Clint is going to do a phenomenal job of encouraging you uh, in, a, in a unique way, really, to think about this very critical decade in your life. So enjoy getting to know my friend, Clint Bruce. Clint, listen to this. So today we're going to be talking about a man in his 20s. And so I, I invited Clint on to, to talk about that. And I just asked him, and you're going to hear this here in a, in a few moments, like what, what did he do during his 20s? Here's what he did. He was in the Naval Academy. He was drafted by the Baltimore Ravens to play football, which, by the way, if you're keeping score at home, I think this season, here in season four, this is the third former NFL player we've had on the podcast. We might need to start thinking about changing the name of this podcast because we're crushing it with former NFL players. But anyway, played at the Naval Academy, then he played for the Ravens, then he became a Navy SEAL, then he went back and played for the Saints, and then he was a SEAL again. And I don't know how all that works, but he did it twice and it's amazing. And so now he's an entrepreneur and a speaker and he invests in the lives of men and women who are transitioning out of the military, helping them find meaningful employment and start businesses. So we do this. We talk about a man in his 20s. We all know the 20s are such an important decade in the life of everyone, but especially in the life of a man. And Clint has this way of thinking about your 20s that I think is going to be really helpful and inspiring to those people who are listening right now in their 20s. Now, here's the deal. Uh, we also get this. Most of the our listening audience are not 20, or they're not in their 20s. I mean, I'm 46. Uh, so regardless of your age, you are going to love what Clint has to say. I took a page of notes, right? I wish I could show this to you on the podcast. I took a page of notes. I did not anticipate taking a page of notes. There was gold coming out of this guy's mouth every time he spoke, and it was applicable definitely to men in their 20s, but to men of all ages. And so I think you're going to love this conversation. He is a gift. So enjoy my talk with Clint Bruce. Clint Bruce, welcome to the Better Man Podcast. Great to be with you today. Hey, good to be on with you, man. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So uh, you're from Little Rock originally, and so you have some connections with Robert Lewis and know those guys. And so I am, and that and that'll exp- and that'll explain why I mispronounce certain words <laughs> because of because of Robert or because of Arkansas. Well, just Arkansas. I mean, it's like it's like so phonetically, it's always going to be right when I spell it, whether it's academically correct, but phonetically, it'll always be right. That's right. And um, no, I loved Arkansas, man. I, I, I loved growing up there. I have family there. My, my bride went to Fayetteville. Uh, my sister went to Fayetteville. So we have a we have a lot of ties back there, and we still go back. Absolutely. Yeah, you do. And it's a good time to be an Arkansas fan right now, these first four games into the college football season. Hey, man. So let me tell you what. Yeah, it is. So my, my oldest daughter, uh, she actually just got accepted today to Fayetteville. Okay. And she went on a, uh, she went on a college trip. You know, so she went on a college trip with her mom up to Fayetteville, and it was the weekend that Arkansas played Texas. And I grew up with Arkansas playing Texas, right? So she goes up there for the Arkansas-Texas game. Arkansas wins. Next thing I see is I get a picture of my daughter on the field at Arkansas State. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, like, why is she going to go on any other college trip? Like, what do you what do you do after that? Like, how do you, you how do you compete with that? Like, I, I had a friend who he was he was on he was on a very significant military mission. He was on the Laden mission. It was one of his very first deployments. He, he wasn't a SEAL. He was he was with the Special Operations. I mean, he contributed to that mission. And I talked to him afterwards. And I said, hey, you've ruined your entire career. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, what do you do after that? Like, what do you, what do, you do on your next deployment? Hey, what would you do in your next deployment? I don't know, man. We recovered some nukes. I mean, whatever. Yeah. Like, what about your other deployment? Ah, we saved the president. I mean, whatever. <laughs> Didn't get Bin Laden. Laden already did that one. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's all downhill. Like you changed your entire college experience. That's it's all it. downhill. Just go it ahead is. and sign up. Yeah. So if she's on the field after that win, she's not going anywhere else. That memory is etched in her mind. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's just, it's just there. That's just where it is. That is. So, all right. So college is usually, that's a time when, uh, when we, we maybe enter into college when you're 19, 18, 19 years old, you leave, you're in your twenties and then you've got your whole twenties ahead of you. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I really want to hear your perspective on this. And so we want to talk today about a man and their twenties, right? This decade of their 20. So where were you when you turned 20? Where, where were you uh, at that point in your life? I was on restriction at the Naval Academy. Okay. What does that For mean? Something I may, I, mean, I was in trouble. Okay. Um, so, so I, you know, my background, I grew up in Little Rock, moved down here to Dallas when I was in high school, uh, middle school, played football, at the United States Naval Academy. So I turned 20 when I was at the United States Naval Academy. And, um, and, and frankly, I needed that structure. I needed the structure of a service academy. I was, I was fortunate to come out of a really great high school program, had some amazing coaches, you know, big, strong, tough kid. Um, my father passed away when I was in high school. So, so I had a, I had a tremendous amount of anger and I was this big, strong, tough kid that was angry. And, and that can be a very dangerous kind of cocktail. Yeah. And thank God was just really gentle with me and steering me to a service academy. Um, I remember I was talking to the coaches and I told him I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And he was like, well, you just tell him. Uh, and that's not true. That's not how that goes. That's it's not how that significantly works. Significantly harder yeah. than just like, hey, 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 I'll, I'll be a SEAL. Was, wait, he got fired. And um, <laughs> but when I turned 20, I, I almost I remember pretty vividly. I was uh, uh, they told me that I'm. I've more personal fouls than anyone in Navy football history, which I'm <laughs> fairly proud of. I mean, we're we're a warfighting institution. You are. My knee jerk reaction is Old Testament. I got to work on the New Testament, but I'm pretty strong <laughs> with the Old Testament. 
And I remember I was in trouble. I was in trouble on my 20th birthday at the Naval Academy. And when you get trouble at the Naval Academy, it's different. Because, like, if you get trouble in, in high school, you know, your principal, like, you get trouble in the Naval Academy, and it's a daggone war hero putting his finger in your chest. You know, like, you just got back from Iraq, you know. He's got all these decorations for valor, and you're just like, yeah. poking you, and you're like, perhaps I'll listen. Yeah. I believe I will listen to this person. <laughs> yes. So, so, yeah, I was in trouble. All right. So then, I mean, when you left your 20s and went into your 30s, like what happened? Let's just talk. Uh, there's so many different ways you could tell this story of that decade. Let's just follow yeah. your professional journey during your 20s. So you were at the Naval Academy. Yeah. Right after that, you went where and then where and then where? Yeah. And, and I think my 20s were uh, maybe a little bit different than the majority of the listeners, because when you elect to go to the service academy, you're basically plotting your chart to your probably your mid-20s. Okay. So, you know, went to the Naval Academy. When you graduate from the service academy, you have a five-year service commitment afterwards. So when you, like we have this night called the two-for-seven night. So before you start your third year at the Naval Academy, you sign your two-for-seven, which means um, hey, if you if you commit to the first day of your junior year, if you leave, you're going to the fleet. Like you don't get to go back and be a civilian and be a student. So you're like all in. So, and, and, and I was, I was unfortunately fortunate in the sense that when my father was ill, you know, my, I remember when I went and, go, went and saw my dad in the hospital, right up there by Watermark, right by Medical City. Yeah. And he kind of sat me down and effectively he said, I was getting these opportunities to go look at schools and play football there. And I was part of a really good team. So I was inheriting a lot of uh, attention because of the other players I was around. And I effectively he said, hey, you have to make a 40-year decision, not a four-year decision because mm. you're the oldest son. And this is when his illness had kind of pivoted. Um, negatively. And I remember him looking at me and saying, hey, son, leaders talk about what they don't want to talk about. They say what they don't want to say. They do what they don't want to do. They hear what they don't want to hear and they plan for what they don't want to happen. And wow. that makes them leaders. And uh, and he was telling me, he's like, hey, I, I don't get to look at my next four years the way other people are looking at my next four years. I'm the oldest son. I've got an incredible mom, an older sister, and a little brother. And so choosing to go to the Naval Academy, um, gave me some uh, advantages to be able to take care of my family. And, and uh, so I kind of knew what 18 through 26, 27 was going to be like, 28 mm -hmm. was going to be like at 18, to the extent you can know what that really means. Like you don't right. know what you're really getting into. Like if you watch Top Gun over and over and over and over again, you're still not ready to be a naval aviator because like, <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff uh, yeah. that goes into it. There's like math and chemistry and stuff. <laughs> and um, so for me, I, it, it was interesting, I guess in a sense I was fortunate because I didn't have to wonder what I was going to be doing till my late twenties. But where it's challenging is everything all my friends went through at 24, 25, 26, I went through at 30, 31, 32. Right? Mm. Um, because that was the season I walked into, not really sure what I was doing, but, but my, you know, I, so I went to the Naval Academy, I graduated, I got picked up by the Baltimore Ravens and played briefly in the NFL. And no one knows that because I played the same position as Ray Lewis. He's pretty good. He's, yeah. He's, uh, bad. I remember watching him at practice when they going, man, it might be easier to become a Navy SEAL. than <laughs> So I did. And it was, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, I went through training and then came back um, to the Saints in 1999 and just kind of remembered 
why I'd left football and then went back into the special operations community and did multiple deployments. Um, so when I got out, I was 29. Okay. And I'd done three, I've done three, four deployments, two post nine 11. Uh, my bride had our daughter while I was over. So I came okay. home to an eight month old daughter. And yeah. Not having a father becoming a father was really one of the scarier moments of I my bet. life. I bet. And um, so the twenties for me were, were people ask me often like, "Hey, what did you learn in the SEAL teams?" And it's an odd. Well, I learned a lot about how to be a Navy SEAL, of course. But what I tell people is like, I didn't learn. What I learned in the SEAL teams was that everybody who loved me that was telling me hard truths was right. Mm-hmm. So for me in the special operations community, it was more of a proving ground than a classroom for life skills and life lessons. Right. Right. Um, and, and, and football was the same. So, so 18 to 23 Naval Academy, 23 till about 29, 30 was, uh, NFL special operations committee, NFL special operations committee. So, when you said that that two for five, or was that or no two for seven? Two, you said two for you seven. Two for seven. So yeah. did they make an exception because you were drafted and going to the NFL that you didn't have to go immediately to deployment or go or stay on? The <laughs> yeah, community? well, they didn't really they didn't really know what to do. Um, you know, the historical precedent was you serve two years, then you revert to a reserve role and you play. So that's okay. what David Robinson did. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, that's what Chad Hennings did. You know, Chad Hennings, but you know, Chad Hennings. I mean, he fought in Desert Storm, like he flew a tens in Desert Storm. So you want you you win a war in a Super Bowl with that's. I mean, that's pretty solid. It's a pretty Good. robust, yeah. you know, five year span there. You know, I think only Roger and Rocky Blyer have done that as well. Um, so the, the the service academy standard at the time was you serve for two years, you weren't earn your pin, which is basically the community that you're a part of. And then you revert to a reservist and you fulfill a variety of recruiting and public affairs duties and, and all this other stuff. And that was kind of the plan. Um, me being in the special operations community made that a little bit different because there just weren't that many of us. Yeah. Um, and, and, and frankly, for me, everything I loved about football was in spades in the special operations community. Like I yeah. love the intangibles. I love the camaraderie, the adversity, the violence, and, and, and you have you had those ten X um, over in the special operations community, so it, it wasn't that hard to leave. Yeah. Plus, I wasn't very good, so you know, <laughs> I can actively serve in the military or ride the bench in the NFL. Yeah. So, I don't know. You know. I, I've seen that league minimum. That that wouldn't be too bad to ride the bench, but hey, let me tell you what—that's the only question Amy asked me. A- Amy, Amy said, "Listen, I love you. I'm so proud that you want to serve." But just curious, like how much money we just lose? I'm like, oh, a lot, like a significant, <laughs> yes, a significant uh, amount. We will be earning approximately ten percent what I would have earned in the NFL, but we get to shop at the commissary, so it's cheaper. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's like the duty free shop yeah. at the airport. It all uh, okay, out. so it all if you out. could go back and do your twenties over again, uh, what would you yeah. do the same, and what would you do different? Man, there's so much that I would do the same uh, ju- just for the reason that I think a lot of our mistakes make us, right? There's not a lot. Um, you know, I, I would, I would, uh, I learned so much from the things I might have done differently. I, I, I likely would have done everything I did. I might have done the same thing differently in the sense mm. that 
a 10 degree left or a 10 degree right on the same path. Right. Um, it was interesting. I was just talking about this this morning with a younger gentleman. If if I could distill the the one kind of habitual consistent thing that I wish I would have done differently in my twenties, it was this, I wish I would have asked more questions Hmm. and I wish I would have listened a little bit longer than I think I had to. Like, you know, I talk about this quality called curiosity and that for me, curiosity is amazing. Um, I'm probably one of my only real gifts is knowing that I'm not gifted. So I know I need a team well and I need to pick the right people. And I always look for conviction and curiosity when I'm trying to decide who to, who to do a, a hard thing with. Uh, T.E. Lawrence once said, an opinion can be argued with, but a conviction is best shot. Because conviction produces action. Yeah. An opinion is uh, cost nothing and is worth just as much, but a conviction produces action. Um, so I always look for people where we have shared convictions. And, and and I can determine whether someone has a conviction if you're willing to hurt for it. If you want to hurt for it, then it's a conviction, right? Yeah. And I also look for curiosity. Because for me, curiosity is intellectual courage. And it's the co-equal and precursor to physical courage. And I'm not diminishing physical courage when I say that I know physical courage. I mean, I've been around it, right? Yeah. But the truth about physical courage is this, is we're brave because we have to be. Mm. If we don't, we're not going to make it. And I'm not, and I'm not taking anything away from it. A lot of people still can't do it. But what elevates curiosity to the terrain of courage is all we have to do is not do this and no one will know that we didn't know. Right. And if, and if we're being really honest, and if, for me, like I'm a 47-year-old man and I'm, I've done some things. And to this day, I have a knot in the pit of my stomach when I have a question because I'm, because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of the answer or I'm yeah. afraid of the work that comes with the answer. I'm afraid of admitting that I don't know. I'm afraid of you finding out I don't know. Mm. Well, that's the definition of courage is action in the face of fear. Mm. So when I'm around curious people, I know I'm in the presence of courage. And then when I find that they have shared convictions, we can do some of my amazing things. And I look back in my 20s and I think about all the questions I didn't ask and all the things that I learned the harder way mm. because I didn't ask the question. Right. You know, you can have courage to make it through adversity or you can have courage to ask the question. And a percentage of adversity we face is lessons we learned the harder way, like when we yeah. could just asked. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I would, man, I would define my 20s and, and really my 30s as I wish. I would have asked more questions and listened longer than I had to. Yeah. So talk some more about that, because I I would imagine there is that hindrance for a lot of young men uh, with this. It's some, you know, it may be not even awareness to to know, hey, I need to ask questions. Some of it, it may be, no, I'm aware I need to ask questions. I'm just not, uh, I feel insecure to do it. So what, what do you think, like, why is that such a hindrance and maybe even such a hindrance for, for young men? in their twenties to ask questions and listen? Well, I think we, I think we put a lot of unrealistic expectations on ourselves to already know. Mm. Um, and, and I think a lot of times society puts a lot of pressure on young men to act like they already know. That's good. And then I also think that we have information that's so readily accessible to us that we can think we know. Right. That's good. And, and, and I think it's the initial question of, Hey, do I really know what I think I know? And, and who would know more than me, even if I do know. Hmm. And when we add those layers, um, it, it'll, it'll help us ask a question. But fundamentally, I think that um, being a, a man is 
in some ways this self-imposed uh, responsibility to always know. And we actually program against that in the military. In the military, there's there's three correct answers. There's yes or no, sir, I'll find out, sir. There's four. Yes or no, sir, I'll find out, sir, and no excuse, sir. And mm. I'll find out is an acceptable excuse. Yeah. And you dead gun better say, I find out. I'll find out before you say yes if, if you don't know you're sure. Yeah. And I think uh, the military – the outcomes for ignorance in the military are so significant and so severe that you just learn to have that. So, so for me, the way I kind of describe life is there's kind of four maps that matter most to me. Mm-hmm. There's the ball field, the battlefield, the boardroom, and the breakfast table. And for me, the ball field and the battlefield were literal seasons in my life. Now, now they mean to me what they mean to anybody else. So the yeah. ball field is... You know, it used to be a place where I competed. Now it's just taking care of myself mentally and physically, right? Uh, the battlefield is protect those whom God has entrusted to me. The boardroom is provide for those whom God has entrusted to me. And the breakfast table is lead a family that loves me and that matters to others. Mm-hmm. And why I think a, a, a map is so important is because if you have a map, the worst you'll ever be is wrong, but you won't be lost. I right? like that. And it's interesting to me. Um, I'm an insatiably curious guy. And what I found is on the ball field and the battlefield, it was really easy for me to ask questions Hmm. because the consequences of being wrong, of getting found out instead of finding out were so significant and so in your face that there was a sense of urgency that drove questions on that terrain. Um, When I entered the boardroom in my early 30s, leaving the ball field and the battlefield, not coming on the boardroom, I felt behind. And there was this basic knowledge that my peers had by virtue of exposure because they'd been on that map for five, six, seven years longer than me. And then the insecurity kicks back up. And then at the breakfast table, um, you know, not knowing who to ask or not knowing how to ask. So to be very specific, in my 20s and 30s, I wish I would have asked more questions. And I wish I would have listened longer than I had to more so in the boardroom and the breakfast table than on the ball field and the battlefield. Okay. And the disparity, I think, between the two is the the ROI, the return on ignorance. You know, the return <laughs> on ignorance on the ball field and the battlefield are pretty steep and pretty hard. Yeah. And the return on ignorance in the boardroom and, and the breakfast table can be invisible for a long time until they're not, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and I think that um, we just have this self-imposed and societally uh, imposed, um, hey, you should already know, right? Yeah. I think insecurity yeah. is a big seat. My answer was insecurity. Like I, I, just, I, I would rather, I'd rather find out the hard way than you find out I don't know. And that is insecurity right there. And, and people look at that, they're like, how are you insecure? Like you played college ball, you played pro ball, and you played in the NFL. And I'm like, and the SEAL team's like, well, why do you think I did those things? I mean, there's a percentage of me that wanted to do those things. So I wanted to see if I'd do those things. But there's a percentage of me that wanted to do those things to prove people right and prove people wrong, right? And, and, and so there's a percentage of those things I did that I didn't enjoy because I wasn't doing them for the fully right reasons, right? And so I even denied my insecurity, denied myself, denied me the satisfaction of some pretty neat things because I couldn't just enjoy those things. I had to think about what to do next, Um and that's where I just find comfort in scripture where it's like, Hey, you are where God wants you to be. And you are who God wants you to be. That's good. Um, 
and to rest in that and be content in that it allows you to enjoy the the current Eden that you're in, uh, whatever and wherever that is. So I think oftentimes when we do talk about the decade of the twenties, we often talk about it with regret, like, okay, what would you do different? And what are some of the mistakes you made? Sure. That's, not, that's not a part of everybody's story. I mean, we all can look back and go, no, there's some things I, I'm glad I did. So I know you no. had some professional accomplishments in your twenties that you would certainly go back and do again and, yeah. that, and that we appreciate. Man, I, I think um, your twenties are for adventuring. Your thirties are for finding, which is mining what you adventured in your twenties for the things you think you love and your gift. That's good. Your forties are for growing. Your fifties are for giving and your sixties are for repeating the cycle, but you got to do it like every couple of years because you're probably going to die soon. So you just got to speed up, <laughs> got to speed up, can you know, two year loops, right? There you go. <laughs> But when you when you look at the tw- when you look at the twenties as an adventure, as an opportunity to learn, I think people can and should be more generous with their twenties. When you look at things in a, in when you look at things in the sense of an adventure, you see mistakes as mistakes rather than regrets sometimes. And and I had an amazing twenties. I mean, with, I mean, I, I, I met and married my bride. I, mm. I got to live life with some of the most amazing men on the planet that are heroic. Uh, the most heroic Americans we have right now. These are my friends, and I got to try to keep up with them for my twenties and, and pretend I belonged. I, I got to, I got to do all these things um, that I said I wanted to do as a with a young man, and th- that's a double edged sword. A double edged sword to to do the things that you said you want to do when you're little, and to realize they aren't what you thought they were. Hmm. It's it's neat to have done those things, but then there's a void that kicks in. Like once you raise that trophy and it's terrifying in some ways, yeah. um, but man, my twenties were great. And, and, and I think most people's twenties were better than they think they were. That's good. If they look on them through the lens of an adventure instead of a business plan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you look like at, if you looked at yourself as a startup in your twenties, then you, you tend to be more uh, authentic and forgiving of, hmm. you know, like you're in, in your twenties, you're a startup. I mean, you're, you know, you, you, you leave college ready to, you're not ready to do anything. Like you graduate from MIT and Harvard, go to work for a company and the C, it's still going to take a CEO six, nine, 12 months to get you ready to do what that company does particularly. That's right. But you know, the, the startup phase is rich with stories, scars and adventures and, and smiles if you'll mine them. Yeah. That's really good. Um, real quickly, with your military experience, if I do look at some institutions out there in our culture right now that are doing a great job with young men, men in their late teens and early 20s, the military has got to be at the top of the list. So what, what is it in your experience about the military that you know allows them to have so much success in developing young men? Well, I think I, I, think I alluded to it earlier. earlier the, like the return on ignorance in the uh, and the military is pretty steep and, and, <laughs> and, and pretty uh, irrefutable. Like, right. you know, uh, if, you, if you don't do it right, the best thing that happens is you get hurt. Worst thing that happens is someone else gets hurt because you didn't do it right. And I think because we're dealing with such a sense of urgency and such a low, no fail margin for error that, you know, the military has the virtue of very fast feedback. Hmm. Um, and because you're dealing with fast feedback, you just figure it out faster because it hurts too much yeah. to, to, to do it wrong. Right. I had a great coach said, do it wrong, do it long, do it right, do it light. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, with what we do in the military, there's just, you do it wrong. You're going to know pretty quickly. Yeah. You, know, you do it right. You're going to know pretty quickly. And so I think it's a feedback loop that affirms kind of guidance construction and, and, uh, and 
development. That's good. That's good. Plus, you can get beat up. Like That's you can what get I was going to say. Yeah. And, you know, that, that helps. It is the Proverbs, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Like, there's a lot of rods. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So that's where for the average church leader, business owner, family guy listening right now, you can't apply uh, everything that the military yeah, does. HR is not a fan of that. That's, no, not at all. There's not a continuation uh, education on the woodshed in the society. Of human resource <laughs> that's right. But what yeah. you're saying about the feedback loop, though, that that we can do that. That's really helpful. Uh, there is just giving young men the feedback they need. Uh, when they need it in a timely yeah. way, and that anybody can can do that. So, well, and listen, and, and doing it doing it for yourself, it's it's not always someone else's responsibility to develop you. Like you've got to create, you got to create your own feedback loop. I mean, it's it's that's what I tell people is like, hey man, are you lost or are you wrong? Hmm. And the difference is whether or not you're on a map or not. And you have a lot to do with whether or not you're on a map, right? Yeah. Uh, if, if you're if you don't have a map, any move is wrong. If you have a map and you're wrong, it's just a matter of figuring out where you are, where you say you wanted to be yeah. and how to get from where you are to where you said you wanted to be. And I think it's the individual's responsibility to create a map. But I, but I, I don't think maps are absolute. Like, I don't think there's this X on a map that you get to and everything's great. The house, the wife, the car, the achievement, the trophy, the accolade, right? I think there's a map and there's X's, X's worth adventuring towards hmm. and people worth adventuring with you bounce around these X's towards Jesus until you meet him. And then when you figure that out, that the X isn't on the map, it's just this progression towards our creator. Um, I think I'm not about giving yourself a pass. I just think that God doesn't talk about us the way we talk about ourselves Mm. a lot. Right. Like God's, 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 God's perspective on me in my perspective on me is is different and, and then God doesn't talk away talk about me the way I talk about myself to myself sometimes. That's right. Yeah. Well, we have to consider the totality of that, right? And I think I think uh the other thing that really helps the military is fundamentally um because war is so savage and war is so brutal, you have to have an element of the philosopher inside you. Hmm. Because you're making meaningful, significant decisions. So I think we plumb the depths of philosophy and psychology and morality uh, deeper than most endeavors because we have to. Yeah, I like that. Um, what do you see, just in your own personal opinion, are, are some of the hindrances of young men being able to take full advantage of their 20s? I mean, do you see, and I'll, I'll throw a couple options out there that I'm thinking of. I think you've got like just distractions that are out there and you've also got the the culture and their changing view of masculinity and, and the whole idea of toxic masculinity, those could be some, some hindrances, but what, what do you see in your opinion? So I think that, um, young men are saturated with opportunities to chase people to certain places. Hmm. And I don't, I don't think that, um, have the kind of like this theory of chase pace and pull, right? Like you gotta be chasing the right people to the right places. You gotta, you gotta be, you got to keep pace with people that scare you a little bit. Like if you don't put out, they're going to leave me behind. Like that was mm-hmm. every day in the SEAL teams was just hanging on by my, by my fingernails and teeth to keep up with these uber talented hyper men of conviction. Right. Yeah. Um, so you got to chase the right people to the right places. You got to keep pace with people that are going to scare you a little bit and leave you behind if you don't do the work. And then you got to pull someone behind you. And cause if you don't pull someone behind you, I kind of feel like all great leaders want to get forgotten. 
Hmm. Like you want to create someone that eclipses you. Yeah. And I think God's gentle with that because if you do it that way, sometimes you just become unforgettable. Yeah. Like John Wooden was trying to get forgotten for the last 50 years of his life, but every year Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would go pick him up and <laughs> walk him out in the middle of the court, right? Because he was unforgettable. I've, I've known Roger Staubach for, <clears throat> for almost 30 years, and I've, I've watched him consistently try to shun and share the spotlight, and, and, and it always comes back to him. And wow. I think there's some sweetness in it. If you don't pull someone behind you, then you're going to be doing this, whatever this is, for longer than you're good at it or longer than you want to. And both of those are a disservice to the this, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's so confusing right now because so many people are telling young men what to chase and where to chase them to. Um, like when we were growing up, you know, you had athletes and business people. I mean, you had people to look up to and try to be like, but it was a simpler time, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. there's, there's so many people with a platform right now that I, I just, I, the whole term influencer bothers me, right? Um, because there's no real accountability on, hey, what are you influencing someone towards? Like, you know, and like for instance, when you, when you transition from the military, you always feel behind. And so if you chase the wrong person to the wrong place, you just feel that much more behind. And I was actually just, um, you know, I, I try to be a very intentional father, you know, and I surround myself with really intentional fathers and I learn a lot from them. And one of these great men, um, his, his father read the Bible cover to cover for each one of his kids. And that Bible's annotated. Mm -hmm. It's like a, it's like a, a commentary to his kid about the love letter God wrote him. So it's really, really sweet and really beautiful. And I'm doing that for my daughter. And, um, and I was just telling her today I'm on Ecclesiastes and I was incredibly fortunate. Um, when I first got out, I went to a Bible study and as a guy who's a scoreboard guy and a guy who's like, who, where's the high ground, who's the apex predator and how do I get to where they are as fast as possible. Right. Um, man, Ecclesiastes, I walked into a Bible study on Ecclesiastes and not only was it doing what Ecclesiastes does, which should cause you to radically rethink what the world's trying to sell you, right? I was sitting there with men who were affirming what Solomon said. Hmm. Like when you when you think that the, the solution is more money and they're sitting across from a guy with a lot of money and he's saying the most miserable I've ever been is after I made my fifth million dollars. Right. And you're just like, okay, note to self, don't. <laughs> Don't chase my, like I was, I was just so fortunate. Right. And social media in the world is like a juxtaposition of Ecclesiastes. And it mm -hmm. is, it is the inverse of Ecclesiastes is what uh, young men are being told to do and chase and be on a daily basis. And unless your chase pace pool is being informed by the right people and, and, and the right words, you, you, you're going to find yourself feeling behind. Yeah. And I think these young men deal with a, a distraction, a diversion and a, and a density of wrong people selling the wrong thing that I didn't really have to deal with. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah. We didn't have to deal with that at all. Uh, Clint, last question and I'll let you go. Let's go to the boardroom, you know, using your, one of your four maps. Uh, you and I both do work with leaders in corporate America and so what would be a few things that you would encourage a young man in his 20s to do that is in corporate America right now to have influence, regardless of where they sit 
in their organization or where they are on the org chart to not waste their 20s there and understand that they're God's man there and they can be influential there, even in this area that so many people, you say, oh, it's so dark out there. Well, that's second, that's second Timothy, you know, second Timothy's, second Timothy's don't let anybody look down on you because you're youth. Right. And so, and so for, for me, what I would, here's, here's a, here's a business plan that any young man listening uh, should follow. Um, first Peter five, six and seven, Galatians six, nine. Proverbs 22, 29, Proverbs 27, 2. First Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Do not put on errors. God will promote you in his due time. He's very careful for That's you. That's good. So if you could write a book about you and God can write a book about you, which one do you want to read? You know, the creator of the universe or the kid that went to Joe T. Robinson in, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas. Joe T. Robinson is a fine school. It's just not God, right? So... So just trust that God's going to get you where he wants you to get you, right? Mm. Galatians 6.9 is not where we're doing what's right in a time of harvesting the benefit. So if you know what is right and you just relentlessly do that, I mean, that's just the chopping wood scripture. I mean, you just chop wood every day, chop wood, carry water, right? Uh, and then Proverbs 22.29 is, 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 is probably, um, Proverbs 22.29 is you see a man excellent in his work, cannot speak for a small man, to speak for kings. And this is where I found comfort. What, what the ball field and the battlefield taught me is if you work really hard at your craft, you're going to be so good they have to play you. Hmm. And it was encouraging to me to then come to the boardroom and go, hey, what do I know how to do right now that kings and queens need? And, and, and how do I do that? And how do I just do that well enough that they ask me what else I do? And then how do I have a good answer for when they ask me what else to do? Yeah. And so Proverbs 22, 20. And then Proverbs 27, too, is let no one boast for himself. A stranger lips and not his own. So that is a business plan that should be your personal business plan, regardless of what industry or business you're in. And if I could kind of Texas high school football coach synthesize that, it's don't sweat it, do work, be excellent, shut up. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And the other thing I tell you is like you, you cannot disassociate. And if you're a young man, how do you know that you're chasing the right person in the right place? Well, if there's a disparity between that person's boardroom success and their breakfast table, mm. I mean, if you're going to compare anything, compare everything. If you're going to chase anything, you're chasing everything. That's good. So be, be mindful of who you're following. And do you want all of their life? Because if you want, mm. I mean, that's a fair picture. Like, hey, do I, do, I, do I want that house and that car and that loveless marriage and disenfranchised wife? So you don't get to selectively chase someone. You need to chase someone who's doesn't have it all that you want, but is doing it all the way you want to say you did it. And that's where that first Bible study in Ecclesiastes, man, Ecclesiastes spared me so much pain because it made sure because I didn't have a dad to chase. So most of my life is like, man, I'm never going to replace my father, but how do I pick these percentages of people and just find what was in his life and in their life and my own. And I just, I go back to that Bible study work. I was like, Hey, you know, you're, you're a carnivore. Like you, you chase things down, you haunt it. And this is what you do. And this is how it made you. So I'm going to make sure you don't hunt the right things, hunt the wrong things. You're going to chase the right people, in the right places. And, and man, just God cares about you more than you care about yourself. And that's really what first Peter five, six and seven is like, do not put on airs. God's going to promote you news through time. He's more careful for you. He's so careful for you. And just be encouraged by that. Clint, this is excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I, I, I knew this was going to be good. I knew this was going to be a, uh, a fun conversation to hear your perspective on all this. I didn't know it was going to be this good. I mean, nobody else on the podcast is going to be able to look at this, but as you're writing, 
or as you're talking, I'm just writing down my own notes. So if nobody else got anything out of this episode, I did. Well, I'm excited to be on this. Thanks for all you do. Um, Thanks for helping good men become better men. And and I'm excited to be on this with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Great to be with you, Clint. Thank you. Hey, brothers, if we want to finish strong, we need to start strong. And I can't think of a better way to start your day than with some encouragement from God's word. That's what Better Mornings, the Better Man daily devotional is all about. Start your morning with Better Mornings and be the man God has called you to be. Check out the link in the show notes or visit betterman.com backslash resources and sign up for Better Mornings, the Better Man daily devotional.